Well, good morning to you. It's so good to see you this morning. What a great vision that is that JJ just presented to us. I think it would be good for us just to have a word of prayer right now for that. Can we do that, please? Let's pray. Holy Father, you told us through your son, pray forth laborers into the fields white into harvest. So we ask for that now and for their vision there in that uh, those needy uh, French-speaking African countries that there would be worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ called out from the world uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please have your way in their lives and in our lives this hour. May the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified in whose name we pray. Amen. Good to see all of you. I've got to mention I've got special dear friends, best friends, Don and Rita Patterson. Just raise your hand. We won't have you stand. And their family. They take up about six pews there or <laughs> chairs. All you Pattersons, we love you. It's one of those wonderful families I've ever known in my life. And Don's been our chairman of the board. Uh, since 1912, right after the war, <laughs> and uh, just uh, has been such a steady helm uh, of leadership for Good News Jail and Prison Ministry. He's also a seasoned veteran, and he's going to be our speaker this uh, Veterans Day Sunday, uh, Lord willing, uh, coming up in November, and there'll be more said about that later. By the way, my daughter and son-in-law uh, were here last Sunday morning. And he's the senior associate pastor at a church with several campuses and pastor of music and worship. So I just had to get some feedback about what's the one thing that stood out in my son-in-law's mind. And I was just waiting to appear very humble as he said, the message dad was just great, <laughs> which he did not do. <laughs> but he did mention people that we take for granted. And uh, I don't want to do that this morning. If you would do me a favor and just look right to the back over there. And let's give our sound people a round of applause, shall we? They do a great job. Now watch the mic cut out, right? But uh, they do such a great job week after week. And uh, I'll tell you, as a speaker, you don't take that for granted. I've had some nightmares when I'm out speaking in other churches, trust me. And, and the thing, when something goes wrong, it distracts the worship. That's the thing. It, it causes people to lose their focus on what God might be saying, and sometimes at a very strategic moment. So we want to do everything we can to not have hindrances so that the Spirit of the Lord can do the work He wants to do in our hearts and lives. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 90. If you don't have one, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you, and it is on page 496, 496. I know of no attribute of God that is so overwhelming to the mind and soul of man than the truth of his eternal being. A man was trying in a rather humorous way to understand the nature of God. And so he asked the Lord some questions. And two in particular, he says, uh, God, how long is a million years to you? 
And uh, God just answered and said, well, a million years to me is like a minute. And he said, okay, he says, um, how much is a million dollars to you? God said, well, a million dollars is like a penny. So the man's really thinking, he says, Lord, could you give me a penny? <laughs> and God said, sure, in a moment. <laughs> Enough of that. Now we go to eternity past. We go back as far as your mind can go before God ever created the heavens and the earth. Before there were angels, before there were gases in outer space, there is only God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In a sense, I know what time is until you ask me to adequately describe it and explain it. I know that time has succession of moments, it has beginning and end, and I know constant change. So when I think of time, that's what I think of. But if you ask me then, Harry, explain eternity, I've been dwelling on the subject for quite a few days, even weeks, in preparation for today. And it can drive you crazy. I mean, it can literally, you have to take a break from it because the human mind is so finite and God is so infinite. Closely related to God's eternality is his immutability, which means he doesn't change. Lord willing, we're going to see that next Sunday morning, Lord willing. Changes all around us, changes in us. And some of the changes we don't like. So it's very comforting to have an immutable, unchanging, eternal God. And we are glad for that. Psalm 90, they say, is the oldest psalm. Most agree it was written by Moses. Some believe possibly just before he died. We don't know for certain. But we do know that as he writes this psalm, he's reflecting on the eternal God and his faithfulness. So we look first at the eternal God and his greatness that Moses presents for us. And the first thing he says in verse 1 is that he is our dwelling place. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now I can picture this great prophet going up from the plains of Moab and ascending Mount Nebo, the highest of the Pisgah Mountains. I was there about 15 years ago on a fact-finding trip in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and the Gulf states of Bahrain, Oman, and United Arab Emirates, and the brothers from Jordan took me up to the place where they say somewhere in that area was where Moses would have uh, been standing right before he died. If you want to read the account, you read Deuteronomy 34, and it's a very comforting chapter about how to face death. There was no sense of fear in Moses. He was ready. And God allowed him to see, and, and when you look over that mountain, you can trace Israel. And Moses isn't going to be allowed to enter the promised land because of his previous sins that we know about. But just before he dies, God's faithfulness is coming to Moses' heart, I think, and he pens these words. 
How 500 years before God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees up to our modern country of Iraq. And Abraham knew the faithfulness of God. The Israelites experienced God's faithfulness when they came to that hardest place in their life. You've been there. It's called Baal Zephon. It's when you're pressed in on all four sides and there's no hope, humanly speaking. There's no way out. There's no solution, humanly speaking. If anything's going to happen, God's going to have to do it. And he did it. He parted the Red Sea. And Israel was delivered. Then the wilderness, and they thought they would starve to death. God came through again. He provided all that they needed. God was always there, always faithful, in times of victory, unfulfilled dreams, even death, to be their dwelling place, their shelter in a time of storm. Oh, we live in a nervous age. It's a life of uncertainty. Like Job said, it's a life that's filled with affliction and sorrow and how needful it is for us to spend our lives meditating before the face of God and on the edge of eternity. I love those words of Solomon where he says, God has set eternity in our hearts. That's why every person in this world has some sense of a higher being. That's why we send missionaries to give them the light of the gospel like J.J. Alderman and others. God has put eternity in every heart. And in the heart of man is a cry to be immortal, to live for yet, forever, and yet everything in us shouts of mortality and change and ultimately death. God's eternity and man's mortality joined to persuade us that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only secure dwelling place for man. Indeed, as Moses says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Then he goes to the great power of God as our creator, and he's even going to be going beyond that in verse 2. He points out that this dwelling place of ours is the very God of eternity. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's, he's going back to creation itself, and then he steps beyond creation, and he makes that awesome statement from everlasting. To everlasting, thou art God. I can drown in that. I don't can't lay hold of it. So the next time you're at a beach, just take one little pebble of sand and then pretend every year you'll go back to that beach and you'll pick up another pebble of sand. And you do that year after year. How long would it take you just to rid that beach? And then you go to the beaches around the world, you do the same. The mind doesn't comprehend it. That's just the beginning of eternity. And we're going to live forever. We're going to live forever. After this life, we're either going to live in heaven or hell. I mean, just as blunt as that. And I say that with a heart of sorrow. 
for those of you who have never come to have God in Christ as your dwelling place. He moves on from the greatness of our God and we see the government of God in verses three to 11 of this Psalm. How we live under his sovereign will, which we emphasized last Sunday. But in verses three to six, he says, you return man to dust. Now notice how he's going from the everlasting eternal God to man and the shortness, the brevity of his life. You return man to dust and you say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. Wow, what a contrast from verses one and two about God to three and six and what we see about man. You return man to dust. It's obviously a reference to Genesis 3.9 reminding us that humanity lives under a sovereign sentence of death from which there is no escape. You've been at the graveside. You've heard the pastor read the scripture, dust unto dust. Then perhaps he makes a statement about the brevity of life, the shortness of time. Just how short is it? I look at some of you young people here and I know time seems like it just goes, drags on and on and on. I'll tell you, when you get to be my age, you say it's short. How short is it, Harry? Verse 4b, it's as a watch in the night. That would be four hours. But at the beginning of verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. One of the most quoted verses in the Psalms because it comforts us when we're frustrated with God's timing. And as, as Peter said, there's going to be people in the last days and they're going to be scoffing and said, so your Lord said he's coming back. But look, everything continues just the way it was then. Peter quotes from this verse, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as the day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us who are not willing any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Why has God delayed the coming of Christ? Because of his long-suffering. Maybe delayed even till tomorrow so you could hear today. It's short. It's a watch in the night, four hours. Verse five, you're swept away. You swept them away as with a flood. We've all seen it. We've seen the tsunami. Bam, it hits and people, hundreds, thousands are gone. Verse five, they're like a dream. You go to sleep last night, you have a dream, you wake up, your life's over. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, flourished and renewed, but in the evening it fades and withers, we're wearing out until we go back to dust. Verse 9, at the end we bring our years to an end like a sigh. I find myself sighing a lot more lately. <sighs> Climb the steps. <sighs> 
another burden. And someday that last sigh, and he puts all life together. This life's just like that. Verse 10 at the end, they are soon gone and we fly away. Maybe that's where that gospel song came. I'll fly away. I'll fly away. They're soon gone. We not only live under his sovereign will, we live under his decree of wrath. Verses 7 to 11. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Here's a very sobering portion of scripture. It's not one we hear about much today, and it's not one that a preacher delights in preaching about, very frankly. See the word wrath? Verse 7, see it repeated in verse 9, see it down at the end of verse 11, your wrath. What does a psalmist mean when he says, I live under the wrath of God? He's facing in all honesty a reality that many of us try to avoid. He's dealing with what we might call the tragic side of life, the fact that every moment of joy is going to be triggered by a moment of sorrow, tragedy, pain. There's a dark side to life. Death is not the natural order of things, but it's the effect of our turning from God through our first father and the curse upon all creation. The day you sin, that day you will die. He lived another 900 years physically, but he died spiritually. Separated from God. One sin. Where in the world am I? What hope is there for me? For you. If one little sin of disobedience separated him forever from God, what hope is there? For the likes of you and me. Without this robust doctrine of sin, we will not be wise, but constantly shocked by what the human race is capable of, by how life swiftly takes away everything we love. Just ask the parents of Mackenzie Lewick. 23-year-old student at the University of Utah from El Segundo, California. News is filled daily with similar accounts. Now some view the God of wrath as a cosmic, hot-tempered Mr. Angry who loses his control and finally just indiscriminately takes it out on the human race, but the Bible doesn't deal with it that way at all. According to the scriptures, the wrath of God is his moral integrity. It's an attribute of God. 
You cannot know and really know God without knowing he is a God of wrath. People may ask me, why in the world when you're speaking on knowing God and the attributes of God, why wouldn't you start with the love of God? Because we'll never understand the love of God till we understand the holiness of God, the justice of God, and the wrath of God. Then we'll lay hold of the love of God. That comes at the end. When man rebels against God, a condition is created not only for himself, but for others as well, which God has ordained for harm. It is God who makes evil result in sorrow, heartache, injustice, and despair. It is God's way of saying to mankind, look, you must face the truth of man's ruin and sin. You were made for me, and the farther you go away, the more miserable becomes your plight in life. The absence of God's authority is destructive to all of human life. And the absence is God's wrath and God's holiness demands that his wrath be not withheld for there are certain causes and effects that take place as a result of our iniquities. Verse eight, Moses brings together our iniquities, even our secret sins. Oh, we've got them. We've got them. There are things I don't want you to ever know about me. There are things in the past years of life I, don't, I would just run off Cape Cod, just like you. But they're all open to the Lord. Nothing is hidden from his eyes, nothing. The cause of God's wrath is always man's sins, even his secret sins. We tend to categorize sins. We ask questions like, why does God allow a person like Joseph Stalin to kill 23 million innocent people? Why doesn't God just, in his wrath, come and strike Joseph Stalin dead? What about Saddam Hussein? What about a mass murderer, James Bundy? If we want to go down that road, then let's keep going. Why didn't God paralyze your hand when you cheated on the income tax last April? Why didn't God pluck the eyeball out of your socket when you looked on her with lust? Why didn't God strike you dead when you cheated on your wife? Why didn't he strike you dead when you cursed his name? Someday every man's sins will be dealt with in an eternal way, but even his wrath is seen in a temporal way, universally according to verse 10. Look at verse 10 one more time, if you would. The years of our life, 70, maybe 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath? Here's a statement of the length of life to which man is reduced under sin. At best, we live to be 70. Some of us have been there. Some have reached 80. Moses reached 120, remarkable. But his days were filled like ours with toil and tragic quality of life that marks the presence of the wrath of God against sin. 
And instead of explaining away life's curses in a glib sort of way, a wise person will recognize God's wrath towards sin as the ultimate cause of all afflictions and consequently learn to fear God. You would never have a heartache in your life or in your home if it were not for sin. And as a result, God's wrath being manifested. If there were no sin, there's no heartache. There's no divorce. There's no children being molested. There's no rape. No need for a prison. The Psalm of Moses teaches us about the eternal God and his greatness and his government. Let's close it off with the eternal God and his graciousness. We look first of all and see his satisfying love, verses 12 to 14. I'm so glad these verses are there because, you know, we'd leave kind of down right now if I said, let's pray. I mean, let's go out and enjoy the wrath of God upon us. All right. No, no, he takes us to the bright side. So teach us to number our days. So full of wisdom. Teach us the number of days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Some of you know Hebrew, that's hesed. I think it's the most wonderful Hebrew word there is. There's no English word that describes it, not one. Your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Teach us to number our days. John MacArthur wrote, wisdom repudiates autonomy and focuses on the Lord's sovereignty and revelation. God's wrath on sin is unmistakable, demonstrating his holiness and justice. But also his great love and mercy is manifested. Moses here has a passionate plea for God's pity, his mercy, his love. That word hesed in verse 14 is translated unfailing love in the NIV. It's a love that has confronted our sins, what has brought about the separation, which has brought about the wrath of God. And it confronts our sins and iniquities head on, whereby God provides a substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice in your place and in my place who would satisfy his righteous eternal wrath against our sins by taking that wrath that I deserve on himself. How great is that love? How wonderful is that mercy? How amazing is that grace? So that he would be just and yet the justifier of him who believes and has faith in Jesus. Isaiah said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How do you get that? How do you have that kind of love? That it pleased the father to bruise his son on the cross when his total wrath that we deserve 
poured out on him. And that eternal Godhead experienced alienation for the first time when the Son was made sin and suffered the wrath. Lord, thank you for your pity, your mercy, and your satisfying love. Secondly, his graciousness gives us purposeful suffering with joy. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. What a beautiful prayer, Moses. So they ask today that, Lord, by your grace and mercy, would you give us a joy that would equal also that time of affliction? There is a joy that God gives us that even makes up for the past, a joy that will restore to you the years for which the swarming locust has eaten to use the language of the prophet. Sometimes we look out off the field of our lives and go back to our youth. And as we look out there on the field, we see it eaten by locusts and its value is gone and its worthwhileness ended. Then you see God coming in and restoring, planting a new crop, bringing it to fruition, to harvest, so that one may now look out across a full field blowing in the wind, every head laden with grain and fruit, and rejoice over the fact that God has restored the years which the locusts have eaten. Aren't we glad for that? Especially those of us who got saved a little later in life. Sometimes when you're raised in a Christian home, that's all you've ever known. And praise God for the grace of God that not only saved you, but has kept you from those times he talks about that the locusts have eaten. But for those of us who got saved a little older, we look back, what do we see? Wasted hours, wasted days, wasted years. But then as you live for the Lord, he gives a sense of recompensing joy to see a field that is bringing in a harvest. It can be lives you have touched that have been transformed. It can be children and grandchildren who are much farther ahead in their spiritual journey than you ever thought of being at their time, right? I look at my daughters as they grew up, can't believe they're 51 and 46. I sometimes marvel that I could be married to a woman that's old enough to have children that old. <laughs> but I watch their lives and how they are thinking and so far beyond where I was. And it warms your heart as you reflect on his grace. I wish I could sing if I did, there's a favorite that comes to my mind. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. Everything I ever hoped for was wasted in strife, but he made something beautiful out of my life, just like he did for you just like he can do for you if you avail yourself of his grace, his mercy, and his love. There's hope, my friend, no matter where you've been or how long you've been there, it's the hope of the gospel. Close it out with the third thing about 
God's wonderful grace, his generosity, his graciousness. Verses 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I think in these closing verses, Moses is simply linking us with our past, how we affect the immediate future. And I think what we learn in these verses is our eternal God, our loving God, our merciful and gracious God continues to heal our lives. And though we never may experience the fullness of that healing until we go to be with the Lord Jesus, nevertheless, there is a sense in which our children and grandchildren will be much further ahead of us. That's why children are either much worse or much better off than their, children, than their parents. Because the truth of it is that the godly parents will have a godly generation to follow. To follow. And yet in Exodus it says the opposite is true. God's wrath can be upon generation after generation who forsake him. So Moses closes with that beautiful benediction to verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Would you pray that for yourself? Just even as you're looking up, just if you know those words, just pray that for you and your family. May the favor of the Lord Jesus be upon us. Lord, establish your work on us and upon our hands. What is the beauty of God? Is it not his holiness, his love, all that he is? So we live eternally under his wrath in hell and judgment or under his grace in peace and love with the Lord. Chris Tomlin, a gifted Christian vocal artist, wrote, you are the everlasting God. We've sung it here a lot of times. You are the everlasting God. You do not faint. You won't grow weary. He's faithful. When we choose to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, God gives us an everlasting promise that expands beyond the boundaries of time. It's called eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life, everlasting life. So we close in prayer. And if you're here today and have never been born of the Spirit of God, if you have never trusted in Christ and Christ alone as your Savior, I implore you to do it right now. Lord, in the best way I know how, I trust Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. 